On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. We did a show, and we called it the Streaker's Ball. And the idea was, if you came naked and you streaked the stage, you got in free. <laughs> and we thought, oh, this is a good gimmick. You know, there probably won't be many people. Well, we had a, a line outside the door of maybe a hundred people standing there naked in San Francisco. And of course, I did it twice. I during our show, I stripped down completely naked and streaked the audience. So uh, it was pretty wild, I'll tell you. Hello and welcome to episode 61 of Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast that proudly claims that my music is better than yours. I'm Paul Stevenson. Thanks as always for hitting play. Now, I'm so excited to bring you this interview because my guest today is the brilliant Fee Waybill, lead singer of The Tubes. Now, The Tubes were wild, to say the least. They came through the musical theatre and underground comedy scene, but played some furious rock too. Their satirical take on the world, coupled with an unmatched stage show, which really was a full-on assault of the senses, marked them out as a band unlike any other. But the music was always there too. The band members were virtuoso musicians, never scared to rock out hard and try crazy and diverse things too. They scored big hits in the UK in the late 70s with White Punks on Dope and Primetime. Now, following those earlier album releases, they then signed with Capitol Records, massive, massive record company, of course. And although they kept their irreverent take on the world, the music was honed for a wider audience in America by legendary record producer extraordinaire Richard Foster, which brought the band big commercial success too. Their iconic album, The Completion Backward Principle, contained the hit song Don't Want to Wait Anymore in 1981, while the single She's a Beauty from Outside Inside went top 10 on the Billboard chart in 1983 and hit number one on the US rock chart. But before we get to that, a quick shout out to some people for this week. Uh, Mike Norris, Bob Eastwood, Paul McClelland, Joey Michaud and Eric Kraft interacting on Facebook. Kate Dawson and John Foreman for reaching out by email. And to Mac Horwitz for leaving a kind review of the podcast too. Now reviews, they're always great to see. Well, the five star ones anyway. So if you do have two seconds, please give the podcast a five star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Good Pods or wherever you listen to this on. It certainly helps the algorithms to make the podcast more visible to new listeners. I also quickly want to say that from Tuesday, May the 3rd, I'll be releasing a new short daily episode called This Day Rocks. Now, it's going to be just three to five minutes long, really short, and it'll focus on one event from that day in the history of rock. The idea is that it's something short that can easily fit into your day. I mean, you can listen while making your coffee or when you brush your teeth or if you're out on a cigarette break at work. It's really quick and can hopefully become part of your daily routine. 
And to keep it interesting, I'll have guest contributors on them too. Sometimes clips from the stars themselves, sometimes guests from the music journalism world or other podcast hosts as well. And don't worry, if you don't manage to listen to them on the day, it won't matter because the content is evergreen. You can catch up on all of them in one go in less than 30 minutes once a week if that's your style. As I said, they're going to come out daily with the exception of the days the big interview shows are released, which, as you know, is usually a Monday. So I'm going to give it a couple of months trial to see how it goes, but I'm confident it will be a great addition to the big interviews. Some short form classic rock content for you. Right, with that out of the way, though, let's go back to today's big guest then, Fee Waybill from The Tubes. Now, if you subscribe to the Vintage Rock Pod YouTube channel, and if you don't, then get over there and do so now, you'll have seen a short video that I popped up there last week with him paying respects and telling some funny stories about his former bandmate, Ree Styles, who sadly passed away recently. Now, she sang and performed with the group for many years, and it was great to hear Fee tell those stories. So definitely do check it out on YouTube. There's been some... Uh, lovely comments from viewers of the video as well and I love this one especially from Ken Espinola. He said this lovely story. Such a beautiful creative lady and such a beautiful sultry seductive singing voice and so playful with the band. I remember her walking down the Pacific Garden Mall with the entire band in Santa Cruz California. They'd just finished doing an album promotional signing at Odyssey Records and were on their way on the short walk to the Civic Auditorium to do a sound check. She was in the centre of the guys like a lioness, bubbly and laughing with her cool shades on. She was the centre of the attention that day. Such a cool, creative woman. No one else like her in the 70s. Rest in peace, Ree. You were a beautiful soul and a rock angel here on Earth. Beautifully written, Ken. Thank you so much. Love hearing these stories. Now, when I emailed the newsletter out to the VRP VIPs to ask for questions to put to Fee, I was staggered by the response. In fact, it's the most questions I'd ever received for any of my guests. So I managed to put a few of them to him. So thanks to DK Rayner, Mitch Hashim, uh, Andy Old and Colby Freighter. And sorry if I didn't get to read yours out. There was only so many that I could fit in. So here we go. Strap in for tales of nudity, bondage, driving cars on to the stage, infiltrating protesters, lying to the local officials, stories from behind the songs, and much more in this chat with the Tube's frontman, Fee Waybill. Usually I like to have uh, my, my question set out and I know exactly the route we're going to go. But um, as I said to you pre-interview, um, I put on uh, my newsletter to the, the Vintage Rock Pod VIPs that I was going to be interviewing you. And uh, if anybody had any questions and I was inundated with questions. <laughs> so I'm delighted to bring these to you. So we'll start with, okay. with a few of those. Um, Mitch Hashem or Hashim, I'm not sure how it is, but I hope I've got it right. Uh, he says the tubes were so eclectic in the early days and then transitioned into a great FM rock radio band. Now, if you, Fee, had to do an elevator pitch to aliens that had never heard the band before, <laughs> how would you describe the band? Uh, well, we were performance art. I mean, we, we weren't a band that just stood there and played. We wanted to incorporate art and incorporate costumes and visuals and sets. And we wanted it to be a whole experience. And from the very beginning, Prairie and Mike Cotton were artists. In fact, the reason we moved to San Francisco and started the band was because Prairie got a scholarship to the San Francisco Artists do. And, uh, and I was a theater major at Arizona State University. And so I was into costuming and plays. And I had done plays up until we got together. I, I was doing musical comedy all the time doing local theater, high school theater, college theater, 
So we always wanted to do more. I mean, it was all about the art. And that's the way we started. And uh, that's still a, a, a vibrant part of our current performance. Um, I've got another one here from uh, Andy Old. He's a, he's a good listener of the show. Uh, he sent a little paragraph, actually, which I'm going to read out because he, he stated it nicely than, than I could have done. He says, The Tube's musicianship and wit from remote control onwards outshines the shock value of their early work, producing a string of strong pop rock albums with both quirky and controversially topical subjects confronting the human condition. Wonderfully put. Thank you, Andy. And his yeah. question is, um, one of his favorite tracks is, what do you want from life? So I'd love to hear the story of how this track came about, please. Oh, what do you want from life? Well, it's about television. I mean, we all grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. Mm -hmm. Okay, Phoenix, Arizona is, it's called the Valley of the Sun. And it's all about the sun. And it's, <laughs> I mean, it gets to, it's, I mean, it's getting hotter and hotter and hotter. I think, you know, back when I was a kid, it was routine that it would get to 120 degrees. Wow. Uh, Fahrenheit. I don't know what that is, Celsius, but. Hot. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, you couldn't, I mean, you, if you, you could fry an egg on the sidewalk, as they say. And so we watched television. We stayed inside and watched television all, all the time. So that was kind of the origin of that you know, that song and all those things at the end of What Do You Want From Life? A heated kidney shaped pool, uh, a Dynagym. A Dynagym was a commercial for an exercise equipment. <laughs> uh, anyway, all of those things were television telling, you know, Cal Worthington was a famous car dealer and he used to sell cars and Winnebago's and trucks. And it was, you know, he would have animals on, you know, I'll eat a bug if you, and he'll, he just, <laughs> would have elephants and dogs and goats and all of this stuff in his commercials. So it was all, you know, all of those things are relating to commercials that we watched when we were kids and we were sitting around in San Francisco when we wrote that song. And uh, a friend of ours actually wrote that with us, a guy named Mike Evans, who was uh, also from Arizona. When we moved to San Francisco, quite a number of people moved up there with us, Mike Evans being one of them. And uh, girls and guys and people moved up there and got jobs and they came up to visit and they stayed for a while and then they went back. And then we would be playing in San Francisco and uh, struggling to get gigs. At one point, if we if we just got too far out, too far behind, we'd just go back to Phoenix and go, <laughs> oh, well, you know, we're returning to Phoenix for a big concert. And we, you know, make a couple of bucks, turn around, drive back to San Francisco. <laughs> so that line, what do you want from life, was, you know, kind of us sitting around going, well, you know, we're, we've got like five cents left. You know, if we were, we kept thinking, if we were really rich, what would we want? You know, and even though we were dirt poor, we were happy. And we, uh, it was funny, we used to, we lived in this little house in the Sunset District, San Francisco, and uh, it was a, a little two-bedroom house, and five of us lived there. I slept, I, this was before I was in the band. I was the roadie for Roger's band. And I slept in the attic on a mat. And Roger and Prairie had the bedrooms because they were like the band guys. The bass player lived in the basement. Uh, actually, it was a garage. And the living level was on the second floor. And they used to practice in the garage. And they played so loud that outside the garage door, there's like 25 people. 
from the neighborhood, <laughs> hanging around, listening, you know, and like we'd finish the song and they'd all start clapping, you know, from beyond the garage door. And we'd go, what? What are you doing out there? So anyway. Fun times. Fun times indeed. Um, yeah. The next question I've got here is probably one you get asked a million times, but I'll ask it anyway. DK Rayner, he says, the Tube's well known for wild and exuberant live performances. What is the craziest thing you think you did whilst performing on stage, either personally or as a band? Uh, gosh. You know, there was, we did so many crazy things. <laughs> we used to do, we used to do, after we got together as the Tubes, we used to do shows in San Francisco. And, uh, we got to be good friends with Bill Graham, who back then was like the guy. Yeah. He was the promoter of San Francisco and he ran the show. He controlled most of the venues and we were good friends with him. And uh, we would always ask him, there was a little theater on Columbus Avenue called the boarding house. I think it was called. And uh, we say, hey, Bill, we're, we're going to do a show at the boarding house. And he would go, oh, okay, no problem. And, you know, we make sure what the dates weren't conflicting with any of, and he used to put us on, you know, as opening act for, you know, like Kiss or <laughs> New York Dolls or yeah. weird bands that would come to town. But we, there was back in the 70s, there was kind of a fad going around called streaking, where people would get naked and, <laughs> and streak. And like they would do it at baseball games run across the field naked. And so we did a show and we called it the streakers ball. And the idea was if you came naked and you streaked the stage, you, you got in free. <laughs> and we thought, Oh, this is a good gimmick. You know, there probably won't be many people. Well, we had a, a line outside the door of maybe a hundred people standing there naked in San Francisco. And <laughs> The deal was, and they would have their their clothes in a paper bag. So you had to streak the audience, and then you could put your clothes on. And of course, I did it twice. I during our show, I stripped down completely naked and streaked the audience. So uh, it was pretty wild, I'll tell you. And we, I mean, we did we did like a Mondo Bondage show where every song was bondage, and every song was all leather and studs and belts and oh and then one other crazy the one really crazy thing when we started to get really popular in europe in the uk actually yeah, yeah. and uh we first went to the uk in 1977 and in fact our our manager at the time was a welshman a guy named ricky farr uh who was the son of tommy farr the famous heavyweight boxer from uh, the, from wales and uh, Ricky took us to England for the first time and we played like Hammersmith Odeon and we played all the, anyway, we got a gig to play the Nebworth Festival, which was a big outdoor festival. Yeah. And I'm sure you've heard of Nebworth. I think yeah. they still have it. I don't know. And the headliner was Zappa. The headliner was Frank Zappa. And this was 1979. And we had a, it was a big outdoor stage and there was like 60, 70,000 people there. There was a whole bunch of bands on the bill, six or eight bands, at least on the bill. I thought Peter Gabriel was there. And, uh, Bob Geldorf's band was there. Oh, was Boomtown uh, Rats. Yep. Yeah. Boomtown Rats, uh, all kinds of bands. And, uh, we had this huge theatrical show planned. We had the dancers and we had actually, Zappa came to us before 
the show. And he said, look, I really don't want to follow you guys. Okay. <laughs> How about if you go on, you be the headliner, I'll, I'll open and you follow me. And we went, well, okay, whatever you want, Frank. You know, we were big fans of Frank Zappa. We yeah, saw, I saw, I've seen his show, gosh, five or six times back in Mothers of Invention days. And uh, we used to do a song called Don't Touch Me There, yeah. uh, which I sang with Ree. And it was like, good girls go for bad boys. And I would come on on a motorcycle. I would get somebody to loan me their Harley. And I'd drive onto the stage on my Harley. And we would sing this with her on, sitting on the back. And we'd sing the song from the Harley. And I wear a leather jacket and, you know. Yeah. But at this gig, we thought, this, we, need, we need something more. So we rented a car and we built an automobile ramp to come onto the stage <laughs> from stage left. And we rented this Ford Cortina, a little convertible two-door car. And we were going to drive onto the stage and do the song in the car. And uh, the choreography was, I'm on stage singing. And this was 79, remember? Yep. So there's no cordless microphones back then. Okay. <laughs> So, and the idea was Reed comes driving the car on and parks. And then when the song starts, I jump over the passenger seat into the front seat of the car with my microphone. And we have, we sing the song, the smell of burning leather. Okay, great. And so I have a long mic cord and I'm standing back by the drum riser. So she's going to pull on in front of me. Mm -hmm. Right. And so... The song starts and she pulls up in front of me and she parks on my mic cord. <laughs> and the, the back right wheel was on my mic cord. And I've got, you know, I'm like here and, and I've got no, I've got no <laughs> length and I'm not going to be able to jump over the car with my mic in my hand because it's, it's stuck under the wheel and I'm panicking and it's getting closer and closer to the beginning of the vocal of the song. And I don't know what to do. So right before I walk up to the passenger rear wheel and grab hold of the fender and pick it up wow. off the ground, <laughs> pick the wheel up and kick the mic cord out from under the wheel and gives me the length just in time to jump <laughs> over the passenger's door into the front seat and the you know, ooh, baby, come closer to me. Oh, and I don't, I don't, I still don't know where, where I guess the adrenaline was just surging through my body, and I pulled it off. So incredible! Uh, it's you know, there's so many things happen during mm -hmm. a wacky tube show. You know, God, it's just <laughs> insane. And obviously, you're, you're well known for that with, with like you say, nudity, soft porn, that sort of thing. I mean, did that cause a lot of problems with you getting bookings then in certain cities and countries? Yes, it did. Although we kind of turned that into good, you know, psycho press. We got banned in a number of cities. We got banned in Portsmouth, in England, because <laughs> of our reputation. Oh, they do. They have live sex on. When we never had live sex on stage. It was ridiculous. We had naked. We had nudity. Yeah. We never had sex, but we had nudity. And of course, that got exaggerated into, oh, yeah, they have live sex. 
and mostly in the South, Charleston, South Carolina, or somewhere, a bunch of cities in the South. And we actually, you know, in San Francisco, when we started, you know, we had a troupe of four dancing girls. Besides Re, we had a troupe of four girls, Leela and the Snakes. And Jane Dornacker was the leader of these three girls. And they did like a comedy bit in little clubs in San Francisco. And we saw them and went, oh, my God, you're so great. You're so funny. You have to be in our show. And so we enlisted them to be in our show. And three of the girls were strippers from Broadway. And, and so they thought nothing of being topless. And we used to do Tom Jones in It's Not Unusual, <laughs> Dancing with Them Topless. And we in San Francisco, no holds barred. You could get away with anything pretty much. But once you left San Francisco and you had that reputation, you couldn't be nude. You couldn't be topless. So they started wearing bras or pasties or something. Mm -hmm. And so I remember a couple of times in the beginning, we tried to get away with them being naked. But the gigs, especially in the in the Midwest, like Kansas and those flyover states, mm -hmm. you don't have those in Scotland. Uh, but so we call them red states. You know, they voted for Trump, those those states. But wh whoever it was, the city father or the city attorney or somebody would come to our show before, you know, at soundcheck during the day. And they'll go, OK, look, we've heard about your reputation. Now you can't do nudity in our city. And if you do, if you have nudity on your stage, we're going to fine you $10,000 and, you know, kick you out of town and and. And I used to and I used to meet with these people. And of course, they were, weren't going to come to the show. They just <laughs> wanted to, to be reassured. And so we had a body stocking, a nude body stocking. You know what that is, right? Like yeah, a yeah. like a leotard. leotard. Yeah. Nude leotard. And prairie airbrushed tits on it. <laughs> tits and genitalia. On the body stocking. <laughs> and so I would pull this out of the box and go, look, they're wearing these airbrushed leotards. They're not really naked. They're mm -hmm. wearing the airbrushed leotard. It's all paint. And so there won't be any nudity. We went, oh, okay, great. And so then we put the thing back in the box and they would go out topless. <laughs> just like we always did. And uh, at one time we played Minneapolis, Minnesota, which is a pretty conservative okay. city and our reputation preceded us. And before, during the afternoon, when we we're there trying to set up for the show that night, the mothers of Minneapolis decided they wanted to picket our show. So they had a, a picket line out in front of the front door of the theater with big signs, you know, tubes go home and, you know, <laughs> causing a big stir and the newsmen came and everything. And so we thought we're going to take the piss out of this for sure. And so we got our dancers, Leela and the snakes, the two bets, we called them. They dressed up like frumpy housewife ladies. And we made our own signs. One sign said, no titties in the twin cities. <laughs> and Minneapolis, St. Paul are twin cities and rude tubes. Anyway, we made up our own signs and we infiltrated them into the picket line. And then across the street, we set up a video camera and we videoed the whole time. And they're marching around. <laughs> no titties in the Twin Cities. No, and, these, and the women, the, the mothers from Minneapolis never caught on. 
We thought it was so great. And then we showed the video in the show that night. Oh, it was so great. So many <laughs> Fantastic. freak outs. Fantastic. I could go on and on and on. I bet. I bet you could. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's move on to another question then. Um, this one's from Colby Freighter, who says, uh, Completion Backward Principle is one of his all-time favorite albums. It came out when I was in college, and I remember wearing the grooves out of that thing. What mm -hmm. do you remember of the writing and recording process of that album, and did you ever think you'd still be performing it 40 years on? Well... That was the first, I mean, I, that's my favorite album of the band. That was when we got released from AM Records yep. and we had made five records there. It hadn't had a hit. We got, got signed by Capitol Records and a guy named David Foster, a producer, <laughs> was assigned to us and he made that record with us. And it was such a joy. And, and the whole thing, the completion backward principle was a sales technique. We found a record in an old record store, a, a vintage record store. We found a record like of 78, and it was from this guy named Stanley Patterson. And Stanley Patterson was a salesman who used to go around to these companies and give seminars on how to get their salesmen to sell more product. They, that was back when they would go door to door you know, selling encyclopedias or selling fuller brushes or selling vacuum cleaners. And his whole concept was visualizing the completed sale. The imagination creates reality. That's what his concept was. And he would say, imagine the completed sale before you walk to the door and before you knock on the door and say, do you want to buy my Hoover? And, uh, that was called the completion backward principle. And so we kind of adopted that whole thing, which was the theme of the record. And uh, we wore those business suits and kind of dressed up like businessmen and kind of piss take the whole corporate world. And, uh, and that was kind of the concept to that whole record. And it was such a joy. That was the first record we made with David Foster. And uh, he had never... I mean, he's a brilliant producer arranger, unbelievable. And he had never made a record with a rock band before. We were the first one. And he had just done Boogie Wonderland with Earth, Wind and Fire. He was an R&B guy. That's what that's his genre. So we just I mean, the guy was it was a joy to make that record. It's just strictly joyful and really, really difficult because he was such a perfectionist and we had never had a producer that was so demanding, such a perfectionist. I mean, and this was before digital, obviously, yes, yes. 1980. So you couldn't fix anything with Pro Tools like you can now. I mean, now you can make a record. If you can't sing and you're sharp <laughs> or you're flat or you're too fast or you're too slow or whatever, you, fi you can fix it. You don't have to be great. You can fix it. But then you couldn't do that. You couldn't punch in on a two-inch reel-to-reel -reel tape perfectly like you can today. And I had never sung for a producer that demanding. And I remember the first song I sung for David, or the first song that we did vocals on, was Amnesia from okay. that record. Yeah, yeah. And it took me a week of singing three or four or five hours a day before he was satisfied wow. with the vocal. <laughs> I kept saying, what? That's, uh, that was pretty good. Was, no, <laughs> it wasn't perfect. No. 
And so I had to sing it again and then sing it again and then sing it again. And I did that. And it, it made me a better singer, I have to say, you know, because the next song we did only took like three or four days. And then the next <laughs> song only took two or three days. And then, you know, I got I got to be a much, much better singer. Thanks to David Foster. And that record really shows it. I think it really does. Absolutely. I spoke to uh, John Parr, who worked with David Foster as well, and he's, he sung David's uh, praises very highly indeed. But just, just talking about that with David Foster and, and vocals and things, uh, um, a famous story. Is, is it true that you, your first big hit, Don't Want to Wait Anymore, you'd actually laid down the vocals for that, hadn't you? But then Bill came along and was, was the famous story was, did he come late at night and he was drunk and he demanded to sing on a song? And I, I'll right. let you tell it. <laughs> no, that's true. I had done, I used to do, you know, at that point, I was pretty much doing every song. Bill would sing one song. Yeah. And like the album before Remote Control, he sang only The Strong Survive, and I sang all the rest of them. And, you know, early on in the Tube's career, he, he sang more, but he kind of wanted to get away. He wanted, he'd rather play guitar. Yeah. And so I started singing more and more and more. And on at that point, I had already sung a vocal. on Because I wrote the song. I wrote the lyrics with Vid Swellnick. He wrote the music. And also with Foster's, you know, arrangement help yes. on the writing. And uh, so late one night, we're in L.A. recording. And I can't remember it was Sunset Sound. I can't remember the studio we were at. But I wasn't there. Da only Dave and Umberto Gatica was the engineer. And they were doing combining. You know, back then, you only had 24 tracks, not mm -hmm. like Today with Pro Tools, you've got an unlimited amount of tracks. So you would have to combine, like if we, if you played with 12 tracks of drums, you only had 12 left for the whole rest of the song. So you would have to take that 12 tracks and combine them. You'd have to like mix it down to like a stereo mix of two tracks, which kind of leaves you without a lot of control or changeability. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's what you had to do. So I think they were there combining stuff and we were all in LA living in a hotel or something and you know going out every night and uh working during the day and uh Bill the way it was relayed to me I mean like I said I wasn't there yep. Bill comes in late at night and he is just hammered and he's been out drinking and doing all whatever I don't even know and He's, you know, complaining, oh, I have a, I didn't get to sing a song. I need, I always I want to sing a song. And Dave says, okay, what do you want to sing? I want to sing Don't Want to Wait Anymore. So, okay. And so they just kind of went, okay. And they're just like pretty much placating him and just going, yeah. just do it. He'll be done. And then we'll move on. And so they put the track up and he puts down a vocal that, I mean, he did, it was a one take. The, the vocal wow. on the record is one take. <laughs> and I mean, it sounds like his vocal cords are going to blow up and get blood all over the microphone. <laughs> I mean, he did a job that I still can't replicate. I sing the song now and I, I can't do that. You know, I can't growl and gravel and, and <laughs> put that kind of angst in. I try. But, you know, I just, I've got to sing, you know, 20 more songs that night. Yes. So I can't leave it all in that one song, which he did. He left it all on the tape and it was incredible. And the next day we come into the studio. 
to rec continue recording. And Foz takes me aside and tells me the story. Bill came in and, mm -hmm. and he goes, man, he says, there's just no denying this track. It's better than yours. <laughs> I, I don't know what. I, and he said, I'll play it for you. And I said, okay. And he played it for me. And I am just going, oh, my God. I said, well, you, it's, there's, there's no question here. This, this blows me off the table here. This shoots me down. This blows me out of the water completely. So just scrap my vocal and use this. This is incredible. And so that's, that's what happened. And uh, I think, unfortunately, he uh, really had a problem with drugs and got really over his head in with drugs as we continued on with the next album and the album after that. And, and then, uh, you know, ended up getting hep C and, and he ended up having to leave the band because of his health. And, uh, uh, but I have to, the good news is he's great. Now he's all better. He's sober and he's healthy. And he married a woman. <laughs> he married a, a Mormon girl. Uh, cause he was, he was so badly into drugs that he divorced his, his wife divorced him and he has two children by her, her who are really brilliant children. And, but he married a woman from, from, uh, Salt Lake city, Mormon world. And she, she saved his life. She saved his life. She got him straight. She got him healthy. And she also said, you are never going out on the road again. <laughs> okay, that's it. You're going to, you find something. I think he teaches guitar. I know. And he records some, and he also is like, uh, he works at a music school or something. He does engineering or something, but he lives in Northern California and is happy with his life. And, uh, but she said, no, no. Cause we tried to reunite at one point mm -hmm. and with all the original members. And she went, no, no, you're not, you're not going. Don't even bother. You're not going. <laughs> okay. That's him told. <laughs> Absolutely. You, as well as being in the tubes, I mean, you, you've got famous work as a producer and you've worked with so many other acts and, and people as well, like so Brian Adams and, and Toto and Steve Lukather, who, who we've had here on the show as well, and Kenny Loggins and Vixen and all these other people. Oh. But um, Can I just ask you about your time when you, you recorded with the Foo Fighters on their, on their album Wasting Light? I mean, how did that all come about? Oh, that's so sad about Taylor. So sad. Well, it came about, I met, I was a huge fan yeah. before I ever met Dave Grohl. And there's a, there's a vintage clothing store in LA on Ventura Boulevard called Iguana. And it has all kinds of wacky costumes. And that's where I had been going for years to find costumes for the tubes. And so I went in there one day and I'm looking for costumes for some tube show. And across the room, I see Dave Grohl and his wife. <laughs> and he's looking for, he's got a eighties party and he's looking for parachute pants to go to this eighties theme party. And I, I just went right. I went, Oh my God. And I went right up to him. And I said, Dave Grohl. I said, and he went, yeah, he was really nice. I said, Oh my God. And I told him I'm, I'm Fee Wayville from the Tubes. I said, man, I am such a huge fan. Of, oh, my God. I, I, in fact, I my best friend is a guy named Richard Marks. 
And I'm sure you've heard of Richard Marsh. <laughs> and I I got my phone out and I called, I said, Richard, I'm talking to Dave Grohl. I mean, I mean, iguana, and I'm done. Oh, 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 oh. And, and you know, and I gave Dave the phone and he said, Oh, hi, Richard. And they became friends. So we became friends and we had him over for Valentine's Day a couple of times, I think, with my wife and I. And he I went to his like 40th birthday party at this. Uh, medieval times, one of these places where they do pretend jousting oh, with wow. guys on, you know, yeah, yeah, Renaissance fair kind of place. And we, I went there and it had, you know, anyway, so we've been friends forever. And he calls me up one day and he goes, she said, this is a tubes part. If I've ever heard one, this background vocal on this song, missed the misery. It was called, he goes, you got to come and sing this song. And he lives in Encino, which was like right down the road in, in the valley here in L.A. And I said, yeah, sure. And he was recording at his house uh, with Mutt Lang. Oh. <laughs> and, and they were doing this album all analog. This was, gosh, what's what, 2009 or something, 10, 2010. And they were doing no Pro Tools, all analog. And they had two 24 tracks linked together. So they had 48 tracks. And he said, we're doing an analog and you got to sing this every time through. We can't fly the vocal or fly the backgrounds to the next position. It's, And so I said, OK. And so I sang background vocals on that song. Oh, actually, along with Taylor, we were singing together on the mic in his garage. And they're <laughs> wow. upstairs where they had set up the control room and the, and the board, the mixing board and the tape machines. And it was one afternoon, you know, we did, we ran it down again. And Taylor was a great singer too. And, yeah. you know, we're, we're, we're singing harmony parts. And, uh, and so it's just, you know, we're just, you're just friends. And, uh, you know, everybody, all of us live here in LA and, and we see each other every now and then. And uh, so, you know, so we keep up and, you know, the guy, he's a brilliant guy and, it's really, really sad about Taylor. And I don't know what he's going to do. You know, they, they canceled their whole year tour. And uh, I don't know, I was talking to Richard about it the other day. And he said, you know, he had talked to him and said, I don't know. I don't, he doesn't sound like he's going to be getting back into it anytime no. soon. He's pretty broken up. You know, Taylor was like his little brother or something. They had been together for a long, long time. So anyway, it's sad. Very sad. Very sad indeed. Um, and just talking about some shows then, because you, you asked a lot on the road. You've got um, a few dates in, in June and July. You've got one in August I've seen that's just popped up. I mean, yeah. are you still enjoying playing the, these live shows? Is, is it great oh, to be back out in front of an audience after the crazy years we've had? I've been going crazy. <laughs> I mean, I, I, mean, I want to kill people with, it, with this pandemic shit. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, we went out last October, and we did about, I think, 10 or 11 shows back east. And then the next variant hit, Omicron, and shut everything down again. Oh, and I, it's driving me crazy. And, in fact, we just, just last weekend... Last week I was in San Francisco and we were rehearsing and we're going to do, we're going to do outside inside this tour. We're going to do the whole outside inside album front to back. And then, you know, that's only about, I think that's 11 songs and then a bunch of other, you know, we have to do what do you want from life and white punks on dope. And actually we're going to do a, a Foo Fighter tribute 
we're going to oh, we're going to do times like these as a tribute to Taylor and uh so yeah we're going to we're planning to go to start in June we got July dates we've got August dates we're going to open for the B52s in August and October on uh, I guess they're doing a big farewell tour everybody does farewell tours <laughs> you know <laughs> we'll probably do three or four of them you know <laughs> and it, actually this year 2022 is 50 years yes. since we got together. We got together in 72 as, I mean, our first album was until 75. So I figured, well, we can call it 50 years and then we'll milk it for three more years <laughs> until, <laughs> until 2025. And then we could do it again, you know, have another fellow farewell tours. And uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to uh, getting back out there. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you, Fee. Thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate it. And, and we're coming back to Scotland. Yeah, okay? good. We're going be to great. be there. Yeah, because you had huge success here in the, in the UK as well. And we loved you. <laughs> oh, yeah. I love playing the UK. And gosh, I even love the food. I'm, a, You know, <laughs> I need fish and chips. I'm supposed yeah, to be eating more fish. So I want to go. I want fish and chips. Okay. We'll get you some. Okay. We'll, well thank you very Lovely. much. Talk to you soon. The brilliant Fee Waybill there. I hope you enjoyed that chat. He's certainly a character and a half, isn't he? Now, a big thanks to everyone who sent in questions for Fee. If you want to be able to ask future guests a question, then please sign up to become a VRP VIP. It's absolutely free, so don't worry about that. Just go to vintagerockpod.com and sign up on the first page there. You'll get a newsletter, no more than once a week. I'm not going to spam you, and I won't share your details with anyone else at all. Pinky promise. Now, it's the time of the show for my top five. And this week, of course, it's the top five Tubes songs. As always, this is my personal choice, highly subjective. I don't expect you to agree. In fact, I'd love to hear how you disagree. So please reach out with your own top fives. So here we go. My top five favourite songs from the Tubes, according to Vintage Rock Pod. At five is a track from their debut album, The Tubes, from 1975, first track on side two. This song highlights the talents of Prairie Prince on drums with some brilliant fills and rolls throughout. It's a stomping track that has it all. At five is Mondo Bondage. At four is a song that's not often spoken about. From 1981, it wasn't on any of their albums, but appeared in the Chevy Chase movie Modern Problems. More synth-heavy, but just as ballsy. And number four is going to get it next time. At three is a big sing-along track from The Completion Backward Principle. The song was written with a former guest of the show, Steve Lukather, from Toto, and it features his brilliant guitar work on it too. It was a top ten hit on the US rock charts in 1981. At three is Talk To You Later.
at two is one of their absolute classics, a track they used to close shows with. It's been described as an absurd anthem of wretched excess, ridiculing the rich and famous offspring of Hollywood elite. It's a feral track with, again, impeccable musicianship and an incredible mix of kind of punk and prog at the same time. At two is White Punks on Dope. And at number one for me is a track from their second album, Young and Rich. It has an energy to it that's infectious. It's made up of so many little interesting sections with a kind of Rolling Stones guitar vibe to it. My favourite song from The Tubes and number one on my list is the brilliant The Tubes World Tour. So there you go, my top five songs from The Tubes. As I said, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this list. Where do you agree or disagree? Let me know. Email me, vintagerockpod at gmail.com or catch me on any of the social media platforms and I'll give you a little readout on next week's programme. Now, I do hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, please hit subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're listening to this on so you don't miss any more future episodes with big name guests and especially with the new daily episodes heading your way as well. Also, please check out the Vintage Rock Pod on social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and give us a like or a follow. It would be most appreciated. Well, that's it for me then. Remember, if you come across anyone who isn't a fan of rock, just tell them my music is better than yours. Take care. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.